I'm thrilled to announce the inaugural MoMA's Emerging Critics Residency Program, which is taking place at Montreal's Concordia University this August. MoMA's, Canada's leading online art publication, will cover new ground by addressing the professional realities facing emerging art critics, editors, and art publishers. The MoMA's Emerging Critics Residency is a summer program that will help foster the next generation of art critics through mentorship and practical skills development, with a focus on publishing in the digital age. The residency will address the professional realities, etiquette, and skills required to navigate the field. MoMA's workshop leaders will also engage in the most recent and relevant debates to art criticism, bringing students into the present moment in contemporary art. Half of the cohort will receive support through scholarships, and our inaugural residency runs August 26th through the 30th. We are now accepting applications. Please email me at skygooden at momus.ca for more information. Welcome to MoMA's The Podcast. We are your hosts, Lauren Wetmore and Sky Gooden. In this episode, Lauren speaks with the art historian, curator, and writer Katerina Gregos, who is originally from Athens and based in Brussels. My desire to speak to Katerina for the podcast came about a little differently from the others, and then I wanted to talk to her about a specific project that I felt was reflective of a lot of the conversations that we've been having this season. The exhibition, The Anatomy of Political Melancholy, which Katerina curated this year at the Athens Conservatory. And I wanted to jump right into it by having Sky read to us from Katerina's curatorial introduction. Okay, here we go. She writes, We are increasingly witness to the debasement of political language, the infantilization and polarization of political debate, the growth of a simplified discourse that panders to collective fears rather than addressing the real pressing questions, the lack of accountability from politicians, and of course, fake truths and alternative facts. Clearly, there is something profoundly wrong with contemporary politics. When I first read that, I felt like you could very easily exchange that word politics for the word art, and we would have a pretty accurate description of the issues that we wanted to counteract in this season of the podcast by asking that question, what makes great art? Right. So while this exhibition looks at how artists are dealing with a loss of faith, say, in politics, resulting in a sense of malaise, you thought it would be interesting to look at the proposals this exhibition makes for dealing with feelings of disillusionment, is that right? Exactly. So this idea of looking and thinking constructively has been a central one for this season, and I think it aligns with Katerina's approach to the anatomy of political melancholy. Okay. Okay, so let's listen to you and Katerina Gregos play this one out. talking about this question of what makes great art Um, and as we've been having these conversations uh, this question for me is becoming increasingly more nebulous but then also more kind of granular Mm -hmm. and of course very subjective but the original intention of that question was almost like a thought experiment for Sky and I to think how can uh, to think about how can we talk about art critically but also productively Mm -hmm. and For me, this was about recognizing um, my own thoughts and the majority of conversations that I was hearing, this kind of pattern of disillusionment 
you know, this, this narrative of the system is craven, the players are either inadequate or underserved, and what's the point? Um, and we wanted to kind of do that hard work of breaking out of that script and that it might actually mean that we would have to really seek out and pay attention to instances where either that narrative doesn't apply or we can somehow look at the other side of that narrative. Mm -hmm. So when I was reading about your exhibition, The Anatomy of a Political Melancholy, I sensed this real connection between the way we were thinking and your sort of curatorial intention where you identified something as, as you say, profoundly wrong, but instead of meeting it with this sense of malaise or defeat, you wanted to manifest something, something that counteracted it as you write again to attempt the difficult task of capturing the complexity of the moment and also asking us to imagine a better future. And I think, uh, yeah, I think for, for me, that intention, like not to put too fine a point on it, was answering that exact question of what makes great art or what makes art great or at least important or worth talking about. So maybe to start us off, I was hoping that you could talk about maybe if there was one artist or work of art that sort of helped you crystallize that initial intent, curatorial intention. No, not really, actually. I have to say that, I mean, even though all of my exhibitions since I started curating almost 20 years ago have had a social and political underpinning. Mm -hmm. And that is because of my own interest in the society in which I'm living in. Mm -hmm. Being contemporary doesn't mean uh, you're contemporary because you live in the present. Being contemporary is something that is related to how you understand your present, how you dissect it and how you engage with it. And um, from the start, one of the things that has been very important in my thinking is the way that I look at art and I look at art as something which is not divorced from society and all of the important issues that are occurring within it. That is not to say that all art is obliged to be political uh, or socially engaged. Um, I believe uh, one of the great things about art is that it can and it should be a completely free field of activity so that if one wants to create art about art or formal art one should be absolutely free to do so mm -hmm. so there are no rules about what art should be in my mm -hmm. books mm -hmm. but I do have my own preferences and my preferences are um, about an art that critically dissects the society in which we are living but does so without losing sight of the fact that it is art hmm. and not activism, not political commentary, not journalism mm -hmm. and not literal representation. Mm -hmm. So all of the exhibitions that I make might look very much about a collective predicament but they actually are very deeply personal. There is always, it starts from a very, very personal concern. Political melancholy has to do with the fact that I'm Greek. Mm -hmm. And 
that my country has suffered perhaps the most extreme form of political melancholy, not only recently in light of the financial crisis, but also in the last 40 years because of political corruption, uh, mismanagement, or what have you. And this is something that has deeply affected me, my family, uh, all of my friends and everyone I know. Um, this feeling of political disillusionment in Greece, which basically reached its apogee um, during the austerity years, which are still ongoing, has resulted in this political melancholy and even, in, I would say, in, in, in political depression, I mm -hmm. would go so far. And because it's something that I see and I feel and I know a lot of people are suffering from it, I decided to make this exhibition. Hmm. And I always make exhibitions because I consider that there's an urgency to make them, that mm -hmm. there's an urgency to talk about something. Mm -hmm. um, but that urgency always begins with the things that I'm concerned with. Right. Um, it doesn't always start with artists. It's hmm. funny, I always start with ideas oh. and then... I'm in dialogue with artists or seek out artists who are interested in the same kind of things that I'm interested in. Right. So I wouldn't go to an artist and say, hello, can you please make me a work about political melancholy? <laughs> right. I would all go to artists who are already busy with yes. works dealing with political melancholy. Right. And so um, in the research you were conducting, or at least in thinking and talking about this, you were noticing that this was definitely something that was affecting artists. Yes, and I guess there, there was a simultaneous, there was a, there was a kind of, let's say, a coincidence, because in, and as I was thinking about this issue, I was also coming upon artists who were doing this kind of work. Right. And so my kind of interest was confirmed um, and also, in a way, legitimized that I saw that other people and other artists are interested in this in this question. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a way how, how I work normally. I'm, I'm kind of interested in the so-called big ideas. Right. But as I said before, it's through the language of art that I'm interested in them. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, you know, we all read the newspapers, we watch television, we, um, you know, well, you know, we, we, we look at the internet, we research, we have so much information. And what I think is important about what artists do is that they open up new horizons into reading complex and critical issues, mm -hmm. very often horizons that are marginalized or um, sidelined or even censored mm -hmm. uh, by mainstream media mm -hmm. or political discourse. And um, for me, I can easily say that uh, apart from my own readings, um, a lot of the things that I've learned in life come from artists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, the idea of opening up knowledge production and opening up alternative um, discourses, critical discourses, and filtering these through the very special language of art... Yeah. For me, I, I'd like to stress the word visual art, hmm. which can mean many different things today, but that's what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in how artists not only think about, but also translate, mediate, transform, transcend mm -hmm. um, all of these things that they're dealing with 
and how they turn them into something new and surprising, mm-hmm. which does not necessarily look like daily reality. I'm struck by the way, the way you talk with such verve about this artwork. And then just when we were discussing outside this idea of wanting to have conversations that are critical, but also productive. And you were saying, you were saying, yes, this is something we definitely need. I was wondering if maybe you could expand a little bit on that. Well, I mean, I guess I should go back to the quote that you mentioned Mm -hmm. um, about the simplification of discourse and the polarization of the debate. And very unfortunately, I think that the same thing is happening in the art world. Mm. Yes, I agree. Whether it is um, starting from the way that we look at art which is no longer a lengthy process of engagement and reflection, but is about scanning. Yes. It has obviously to do with the fact that we have all this new technology at our fingertips. I was really struck um, at the last Venice Biennial how people were looking at the exhibition through their phones. Mm -hmm. They were walking through the corridors of the Arsenale, Mm -hmm. looking at the exhibition through their phones, in the very same way that the tourists who are arriving in taxi boats on the Grand Canal are filming the buildings on the Grand Canal and looking at them through their cameras rather than actually looking at them directly. Right. Yeah. So that's one thing which I think has changed the way we engage with art. And the second is that uh, very surprisingly and extremely disturbingly, I find that the conversations in the art world are becoming very programmatic. Mm-hmm. I entered the art world precisely because I thought that it was a, a field of open, free exchange and expression and a healthy, let's Mm -hmm. say, exchange of opinions. Mm -hmm. And what I'm finding in this age of political correctness is that you either have to subscribe to a particular point of view or you're immediately, uh, you know, labelled reactionary or, you know, this Mm. or that. Or you're cancelled. Uh, or you're cancelled very, very simply and very easily. Yeah. Um, and I find the same kind of polarization um, in the discourse within the art world. Mm-hmm. A lot of it has to do with identity politics, mm-hmm. um, obviously, right now, but it goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been in conversations where um, I've noticed and witnessed that people don't listen anymore. They bring their own um, prescribed and predetermined opinion. And if you don't subscribe to that opinion, then you're immediately considered a quote-unquote antagonist, someone from quote-unquote the other side. I see. For example, I find it quite extraordinary how even things that are extremely political have become very fashionable. Mm Mm-hmm. And how every self-respecting curator nowadays feels obliged to have a show about feminism or this or that, even Mm -hmm. though this or that curator has never had an interest in that issue in the past. And artists, indeed. Or to talk about, I don't know, the Palestinian question, or it can be any kind of subject which is deemed worthy of noble conversation at the moment. Right. So I I also question the motives um, behind 
how and why someone, whether an artist or whether a curator, engages with a specific issue. There are advances taking place at the same time, mm -hmm. which are very, very good. But at the same time, I feel that some things are being sidetracked because we're too busy focusing on specific issues mm -hmm. that check the right boxes. Right. So, so it's not speak. necessarily that those issues are being focused on, but that they're, they are being um, instrumentalized towards some kind of like, I hate to use this term, but like virtue signaling in a way. Precisely. Yeah. That is exactly what I want to say. Is that why um, your focus for this exhibition was the focus of it is on the Greek situation, but you're also talking very much about the European situation and Brexit. And then of course you, you are aware of the fact that this is, you know, a very international, I think, experience of feeling defeated by contemporary politics. Yeah. Well, actually you're absolutely right. Um, you know, the point of departure was of course the, my own experience yeah. with the Greek situation, but the exhibition is actually an exhibition that focuses on Europe. Mm -mm. First of all, I, I cannot claim and I do not want to claim that I can speak uh, for every part of the world. Um, and I'm also not in favor, as I said to you before, of checking all the right boxes mm -hmm. uh, and just um, talking about geographical diversity for the sake of geographical diversity. So mm -hmm. I prefer to be a bit more specific mm -hmm. in what I'm looking at. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it was very much about Europe because I am a European. Um, I was born in Athens, studied in London, and now live in Brussels. Mm -hmm. And I'm witnessing to the rapid degradation of this continent. And I find it extremely sad and dangerous to see how Europe is going down the path of populism, of authoritarianism, and of blind neoliberal capital. Mm -hmm. Do you see the concerns that you have just shared echoed in contemporary practice? Oh, absolutely, by a certain segment of, uh, of artists. Right. What is that segment? Well, I think it's artists who are ma mainly concerned with research-based and critical practices. It's hmm. certainly not artists who are showing work at art fairs, although even at art fairs once in a while you can see a more politically engaged work. Right. It is artists who are engaging seriously with content and engaged in long-term research and multidisciplinary collaborations with sociologists, anthropologists, ethnographers, scientists, mm -hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But even a painter with an imagination can bring in a new narrative and a new perspective on a political issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's not, it's not um, you know, the one doesn't exclude the other, mm -hmm. so to speak. But yes, I think there is, uh, th th there is a large segment of um, artistic communities throughout Europe now who are engaging with these issues. I mean, in that sense, I don't consider, I used the word art world before, but actually I don't think there is an art world. There are many different art worlds in plural. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's the art world of the 1%. Mm -hmm. There's the art world of uh, smaller scale commercial galleries who want to sell to collectors. There's the activist art world. There's the militant art world. Uh, you know, there is the uh, intellectual art world. There are so many different art worlds. Mm -hmm. Which one do you prefer to reside in? Well, I, I, I prefer to reside um, in the one where... 
I'm going to try and put this in one <laughs> sentence. Um, seriousness of purpose, proper diligent research, awareness of the complexities of the politics of representation, motives which are not suspect, <laughs> but also humor, imagination, poetry, and definitely an art world which is not infected by cynicism and defeatism. Hmm. And is that something that you are witnessing a lot of? I think there's an incredible amount of cynicism in our society today. Mm -hmm. And no doubt the art world has also been infected by it. Obviously, this cynicism is more manifest in the art market, Mm -hmm. but you can also see it uh, in the institutional world as well. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to what you were saying about research-based practices and how you are looking at them as very much manifested as visual art. You're sort of forefronting this idea of a research-based practice or a critical um, engagement in research, but you're also being very specific about the fact that it needs to be art and that it's not social work or it's not um, historiography. Can you talk a little bit more about how you come to that distinction? Yes, I think quite simply this process has to lead to a result which is visually engaging, surprising, inspiring. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas I said before, it's not only the research that counts, because otherwise you could be an academic, but it is what you do with it as a visual artist. So how it's communicated, I guess. How it is translated how it is communicated, how it is presented, how it is twisted, transformed, all sorts of things that actually make a détournement from the original source material. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So books in a vitrine do not an artwork constitute. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It might be very interesting supporting material for an exhibition, but taking a book you've read and placing another three books next to it in the vitrine does not constitute an artistic act in my book. Right. And quite frankly, I'm not a curator who's afraid of the dreaded word aesthetics. Right. <laughs> That's re- very refreshing, in fact. By extent, not, uh, you know, beauty uh, mm. or poetry or indeed humor, you know, but it has to be beauty with brains. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder, actually, if I could use that as a chance to um, to kind of zoom out to this larger questions we've been asking people in this season, um, which is, if you, if I might put you on the spot, can you think about a first experience with art that you can remember as kind of maybe either giving a hint to or solidifying your understanding that there was something important going on and it was something you wanted to be involved with? Well, I can't pinpoint it to one particular instance, but I can maybe give you examples of two, three things. Yeah, perfect. um, That were instrumental for me. Mm -hmm. The first thing was when I first read Ernst Gombrich's uh, The Story of Art, Hmm. which was the first art history textbook that I have 
ever laid my hands on. And I think I was something like 13, 12 okay. or 13 in school. Okay. And that really opened my perspective on how important art was for society. This was a complete revelation for me, as was a class um, that I took in school called Theory of Knowledge, which actually used also visual arts examples from the entire art history. And I maybe should stress the fact that I I did train as an art historian and and not as a curator, Okay, because I think this is important. Why do you think that's important? Because I think you need to be aware of the history of art before you start curating. Okay. Uh, and do you find that, that that is not something that, that's not a view that other people share? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, this is how I feel, but very often if you don't know your history of art, you're liable to make very, very embarrassing mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and um, and then I guess that the two artists uh, that really made an impression on me, and I can't remember where I first saw saw the works, but one was um, Francisco Goya's Disasters of War, mm-hmm. which has been imprinted in my memory as a kind of statement against the disasters of war. And the second, as a kind of more transcendental experience, was actually looking at the work of Caspar David Friedrich, hmm. um, which, who is an artist that many people don't dare to admit that they like today, <laughs> because somehow he's been misassociated with Nazism, mm-hmm. although, of course, uh, he was alive and died well before <laughs> National Socialism in Germany. But I think that he is an artist who has managed to take something as normal or as sublime as landscape Mm. and turn it into an almost religious-looking experience and a kind Mm. of moment of spirituality which I think is quite unparalleled in the history of landscape. Hmm. So, yeah, I'm struck by that use of the word um, transcendental. For you, looking at those artworks, is that... Is that a physical experience or is that a... How does that work for you? I'm afraid it's an experience you can't describe. It's almost like feeling that you're flying, although you're not flying. I mean, that's the only way I can kind of put it into words. It's being transported to another realm, almost having a kind of of out-of-body experience. It's very difficult to... I understand you know, different artists generate different feelings. Hmm. Um, But definitely, I think Caspar David Friedrich creates this unbelievable atmosphere Mm -hmm. in his paintings. Yeah, I love this. I love this um, talking about feeling. I think that's really important. Which is another word that has been banished from contemporary art. Yes, absolutely. And that's also another word that I'm not afraid to use either. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess... Maybe the conversation about feeling has has changed. It's now more about emotional labor or or emotional precarity or the protection of feeling or the protection of experience rather than this idea of a physical embodiment of an experience of art, I guess. I think you're absolutely right and it's very well put. And it's the way you described it, it's more about protection from grievances. Right, exactly, boundary policing, rather than it is about the idea that potentially art can take down physical and emotional and intellectual barriers. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and allow you to feel something outside of that. Yeah. To quickly come back um, to our conversation about the exhibition, I was reading Catherine Drake's review 
for art form. She writes that this work by, you'll have to forgive me, Katerina Apostol... Katerina Apostolidou. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> that quotes Rosa Luxemburg's letters from prison yeah. and says that these letters are, are saying that they are about the necessity of faith in the renewal of the natural order. Um, and yeah, so Catherine Drake was saying that this was this was uh, positing hope or this was positing a solution. And I wondered if you, like, is this true for you politically? And how can we apply, if we want to, how can we apply this to the way that we engage with art? I, I, I must say this work is extremely inspiring in, in, in many ways because it actually returns to a point of view and an argument, which is actually a very, very simple one, that very often we get lost in the macro, that we lose sight of the micro. Mm. And just to give you a bit more information about this work, um, the text is actually taken from Rosa Luxemburg's writings when she was in prison, mm -hmm. uh, before she was murdered, and uh, between 19, I think, uh, 16 and 18, if I'm not mistaken. And um, while she was in prison, she made her very famous um, herbarium. And this herbarium was her way of escaping her circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, she was interested in flowers and botany. And at the same time as she was engaged with all these very heavy political issues, she was looking at the flowers around her mm -hmm. and, and actually getting hope from that. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, very often we lose track of the things around us that do matter. Mm -hmm where not all hell is breaking loose. <laughs> Coming back, I think, to the beginning of uh, this discussion where I think you inferred about how art has become very, very critical and perhaps a little negative, if I'm not mistaken. Or more just that the conversations that I feel like on a personal level that I'm having, there was this constant kind of recycling of the same conversation. This isn't working. I don't like this. It was always this kind of stance of negativity towards things rather than doing the work of finding the things that are working, looking for models that I want to emulate rather than models that I want to yes. destroy. And I so agree with you on this. And I think this is something that needs to be said more often. It's not said often enough. But yeah. it's true that there is a penchant in contemporary art to talk about everything that is wrong with mm -hmm. the world. Exactly. As opposed, with, as opposed to things that are actually going right in the world. Right. And uh, we all know there's a lot that's going wrong. And mm -hmm. we all know that we are in a very particular moment for mm -hmm. humanity. But also, how can you make that that conversation about what's right not be a conversation about um, sort of resting on your laurels, but a conversation that mobilizes, a conversation that is useful. Yes. Well, that, of course, depends on who your conversation partners are sure. to start with. <laughs> but uh, let me put it this way. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, I'm putting together a book, uh, a reader, which is called Becoming Human. Hmm. 
which is uh, being produced as part of the Riga Biennial Foundation's um, uh, program in between biennials. Mm -hmm. The subject of the book is indeed our humanity right now in the age of high capitalism, sort of artificial intelligence, internet, social media, and all of these things that have uh, given, let's say, predominance to the individual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, as opposed to the community or the group or the commons. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there are a lot of critical texts in it by some very, very uh, illustrious thinkers. <laughs> But a few months ago, I completely by accident met in Riga Luis Rossetto, who is the co-founder of Wired magazine back in the late 90s. And he came to see my uh, Riga Biennial, which was called uh, Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More. And he kind of challenged me mm. uh, by saying that there's a lot of work that is kind of doomsday work in the biennial, although there were other things in it, sure. but that's how, that's how he read it. Yeah. And um, we got into a very, very heated debate mm. where I disagreed with him on a lot of things, including his views on climate change and many other things. But for me, it was a very interesting wake-up call. Because we can all get trapped in our own kind of, you know, rhetoric and interests and sort of narrative that we're following. Exactly. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm also guilty of that. And I suddenly thought, hang on a second, he's coming, he's not coming from the art world, he's coming from the world of technology. Mm -hmm. And of course, there is a dystopian aspect to it, but like everything, there's also a positive aspect to it. Right. And uh, I thought, okay... Even though I disagreed with most of what he said, I'm going to invite him to contribute a text to the catalogue, hmm. to the book. And he wrote a text called Militant Optimism, okay. where he lists a whole host of issues that are actually going better in the world today and which you will never hear about <laughs> in any artist's work. Yeah, yeah. And so the answer to your question is, I think that we need to talk with people we disagree with. Mm. Um, because from the people that we disagree with, we might actually learn something, whereas we very rarely learn from the people who have exactly the same opinion as we do. Right, the echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'm afraid, I think there we might both agree that this is, this is what you know, a large part of the contemporary art world has become a kind of echo chamber, which is, you know, uh, preaching to the converted and barking up the same tree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this was a very interesting exercise, as was um, the invitation extended to um, the neuroscientist Raymond Tallis, who is a brilliant, brilliant um, scientist, who wrote a text called Parisian Anti-Humanism, and completely destroys a large part of French post-structuralism, hmm. which is, of course, sacred. How satisfying. Yeah, which is, of course, which <laughs> yes. is, of course sacred in the art world. Yes, yes, you know? yes, yes. So, so um, <laughs> in order for things to move forward, I think we have to step outside of our comfort zone. In reality, not say we step outside of our comfort zone. Right. Not say we are critical, because in the art world we're saying we're always saying how critical we are. Right. But we rarely step out of this echo chamber. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think another way of, uh, you know, 
looking at you know present day predicament is also by seeing how you you and me and each of us can act in the sense that for me the politics starts with practicing what you preach mm-hmm. it's not about only pronouncing some you know mm-hmm. noble ideas in an exhibition or in an artwork but actually seeing how you apply your politics in your daily life yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and there are very um yeah very concrete examples of the way that that is very rarely the case in the art world because there are so many double standards do you think it's harder to get things done have opportunities succeed in the art world if you are constantly asking those questions and it is harder them? it is harder but it's not impossible right i mean one of the reasons i've chosen to stay an independent curator mm-hmm. is precisely because I feel more free mm-hmm. to articulate the ideas that I want to, to protect the artists mm-hmm. uh, as they should be protected from outside interference um, better than I could if I were working for an institution mm-hmm. and more so, let's say, for an American institution because American institutions, I think, are now... Uh, so completely bound with private interests and collectors and private capital that mm. I, th- I have the feeling that they've lost any sense of autonomy. Mm. Um, and mm. the only thing that I think makes them feel good is sort of pretending to be politically correct. Right. Um, so it, it is more difficult. Mm-hmm. It is more difficult. You can. It's more difficult to find money. It's more difficult to convince people. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, when you do, you are able to do it on your own terms mm-hmm. um, and you are able to do it on the terms that you believe are also ethically correct. Mm-hmm. Do you find that the artwork that is created under those conditions to you is superior than artwork created under the kind of other conditions that we've been discussing? It, it depends on the artist and the artwork. I don't okay. think that you can apply that as a rule of thumb. You might have a, a work of art that's being created in the best conditions possible and it's not an interesting work of art mm. and you might have a work of art that is being created within you know mm-hmm. under the under the sort of you know watching eye of some <laughs> sort of powerful trustee mm. um, and it turns out to be a fantastic artwork mm. so my last question but I think we've already answered it but maybe there's something else that you wanted to say about um, yeah those initial feelings of of connection to art or of as you say, something having a profound experience or a profound effect on you. Um, and how do you stay connected to that in your day-to-day life, but also in your practice? Or how um, do you maintain I, I stay really close to artists. Right. My work and life and world revolves to a large extent, my, my professional, uh, but also my personal, revolves very much around artists. So... Mm-hmm. Um, my friends are mostly artists um, and I consider myself really fortunate in the sense that I'm always talking to people who have something interesting to say, uh, have something interesting to share, mm-hmm. um, who are reading and listening and looking to interesting things mm-hmm. and who inspire me as artists and as human beings and this is the way that I've also kept Uh, on being optimistic (laughs) because, um, you know, I'm not part of the art market. I'm not part of this kind of more cynical uh, profiteering art world. I'm, you know, I'm very much grounded in the world of ideas. Uh, And and this is a very hopeful 
uh, and very inspiring place to be, no matter how flawed it might be somewhere along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. As I said before, it's, it's, it's artists who I always look to and who uh, never cease to amaze me and to inspire me. And it's mm. not all artists, but even <laughs> if there's a handful of artists, mm. this is already uh, a great, great uh, gain and gift. Words to live by. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish, features original music by Kyle McRae, and assistant production from Mitra Shiram. We would like to thank Katerina Gregos for her contribution to this episode. If you'd like to inquire about advertising opportunities or other forms of support, please contact me, Sky Gooden, at momus.ca. This has been episode 12 of Momus the Podcast.